Rússia, Rodena, Pemócia, Dobre, Oi, Bozafra, Nebodemo, Welcome to Ukraine 242. On the 24th of February, Russia began bombing Ukraine. It is a date burned into the psyche of every Ukrainian. For all of us, it was the onset of life in a changed world. In the next half hour, we will hear people in Ukraine describe this global alteration as it unfolds. I'm Ann Levine, reporting for Pacifica Network from WOMR and Kraina FM. When Russia bombed Ukraine, it touched me personally. My roots are Ukrainian. Prior to World War II, one grandparent fled Kiev and another fled Odessa. Both were fleeing genocide. I learned about a radio network in Ukraine called Kraina FM, and as a radio host of 15 years, their story lit a bonfire in my heart. From an undisclosed location, they are continuing to broadcast as Radio National Resistance, using the airwaves to support and assist the needs of Ukrainians. I was able to find and connect with Kraina FM staff, and our collaboration began. I am their media liaison to the USA, and with their help, bring you reports from people in Ukraine. This episode of Ukraine 242 contains graphic descriptions of war atrocities, violence, and children in distress. It may not be appropriate for all listeners. Please use your discretion. Anastasia Mishuska is a 29-year-old Ukrainian model, Instagram influencer, and nightclub DJ. Besides being a jet setter, Nastya is a wife and the mother of a three-year-old boy. February 24th began for her, as it did for most Ukrainians. At 5 a.m., she was awakened by bombs falling on her city, Kiev, and a declaration of war from Russia. The interview I did with Nastya has two parts— the second is about her parents who were trapped in Cherniv. And the first is about her family in Mariupol. Oh my God, Mariupol is my <laughs> biggest pain. Two days ago, I received a call from my uncle. It was my first talk with him since 22nd of February. He's from Mariupol. He has two small children, a girl one year old and a boy eight years old. Every time I listened with horror news from Mariupol, I cried and I saw they died and I hoped that God would save them. Two days ago, my uncle called me. I was very happy, but what he told me just killed me. He told me how I was in Mariupol. It's really terrible. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. They survived the months of hell. On March 24, uh, they left Mariupol and the hell goes till now. They are now under Russian occupation in a town not far from Mariupol, and they are being prepared for deportation to Russia. I will tell you a little about the conditions in Mariupol. In the first day, they lost heat, light, electricity, and the windows in the apartment flew out from the explosions, and the cold was terrible. It was minus 12 outside, it was snowing, and they have two small hungry and cold children. 
there were no bomb shelter and basement nearby. At first, they hid in the entrance of their house, and when the entrance burned down, they hid in the pantry in the apartment. It was a very little pantry, and uncle took candles and oil uh, burners, and with difficulty hid in this pantry. Uh, they lived there for a month. The children slept on the floor, and the parents sat on chairs because there is not enough place. And my uncle was cooking food on the street on a fire. He said that he found rotten sausages near the trash can, soaked them for two days, and then cooked them, and they ate this. When the Russians shoot, he ran and hid in the entrance. It was necessary to walk three kilometers for water, but it was the road of death. It was all littered with uh, corpses. Russian soldiers, for their sick entertainment, uh, shoot people who went for water. Soon they had no water. Volunteers did not reach their area and, and they had to walk around the yard to the remaining people, ask for some food, for some water. And the children now is in a terrible state. The older boy, who is seven years old, he stopped talking. After all this horrible situation, he doesn't talk now. And the other one, one-year girl, she's in panic about every noise. She lays on the floor and starts crying, puts her arms on her head, and it's, it's a really terrible situation. And all the children, always fun, in fun, uh, but now you know, screaming, it's terrible, really. <laughs> um, they could not leave the city. Their car was shot, and... And then one of their neighbors got his car to leave and took my uncle and his family. But they left only on occupied territories. So they were trying to get out of their house in Mariupol with their neighbor that had a car. Yes. And then they got stopped by the Russians. When they exit the city of Mariupol, there are block posts of Russians. And then Russians check their car and check uh, people. They said that people should put their clothes off. Stripping people? Yes, they're looking for Ukrainian tattoos. If somebody have Ukrainian tattoos, they kill them on that place. And they check telephones for symbolic Ukrainian songs, messages about Ukraine, about hate to Russia, so everything Ukrainian. If you don't have it, you can go. But you can go only on the occupation territories. Every few kilometers there are Russian blog posts and they say where you can go. And uh, they say it's the only option to stay in the occupied territories or go to Russia. When you say Ukrainian tattoos, do you mean the trident symbol? Yes. In Ukraine, we named it Trizup. Russians look at our Trizup tattoos. Everything Ukrainian. Letters, words, maybe some words from songs. And they're killing those people? Yes, yes, yes. And your aunt and, and uncle, aunt. they're in Berdansk? Yes, and two children, yes. Where there are now Russian planes are constantly flying overhead in their house every day. It's very scary. Russian militaries are everywhere. Where are they being held in Berdansk? Are they in a bunker? 
Now they are living in a house with old woman that sheltered them. Mm-hmm. She gave him some food for children, milk, eggs, bread. Are there other people from Mariupol with them? In this house, they are alone, but he said that there are a lot of people from Mariupol, really a lot. In every corner, he met somebody from Mariupol, and they talk with each other, and everybody is waiting for distribution to Russia. They are told that there is one way out of Russia, and they must go through the procedure where Russian asks about their attitude towards Ukraine, Ukrainian government, Europe, America, NATO, and the person, then he can be killed. And they take a child from a car and say to parents, if you don't go to Russia, we will kill your child. And my uncle, who is a parent, he's responsible for his children. So he says if there is a chance to save their lives, he's ready to go even to Russia. Now Russia take him and his family and put them to Vladivostok. It's another part of Russia. They don't want to go there. They said that if you don't go there, I will kill your children. My uncle told that maybe Russian government said that he should go on war for Russians. And fight against Ukraine. Against Ukrainian. And my dad said that he can't do this. He will not go. He will do a suicide. When are they leaving for Vladivostok? He said that it will be in the nearest few days. Maybe now they're going there. He could not talk to me for a long time, only 10 minutes, and he could not talk many things because Russian could hear him and he can be killed. But I think they will be taken out on Russian buses and then maybe on trains. <laughs> Russians are really called that they are saving Ukraine from fascists, but they only kill, destroy, cripple people, deprive people of their homes, properties and families. Russians are not people, it's really evil, and I hear a lot of stories. I'm a volunteer, I have people from Mariupol, and I know this uh, Mariupol is a fact that they're real evil. How did the people that you're encountering in your volunteer work, how did they escape from Mariupol? In first few days, they have some areas of the city where it was safe and people could go to Ukraine. But last few days, I have children from Mariupol without parents. Their parents were killed. I have one boy, eight years old, and few girls, four and six years old. They're alone. Their parents were killed. And uh, the Red Cross and um, our government evacuated them. But uh, children is too scared and uh, they don't want to talk about this. uh, And I can't ask them about this. It's too painful for them. Worse. Where are these children living? Now they are living in a children's shelter in Kiev. I help them with clothes, food. I just help with everything we have in our volunteer group. And they are looking for their relatives around Ukraine. So some of these children may have relatives elsewhere in Ukraine. Yes, but a big problem is that they haven't got any documents. We get these children only in clothes, that's all. Without any documents, just child and clothes, that's all. They're too young to be able to identify themselves and their families. Yes, yes, and uh, that's why our um, 
volunteers uh, who works in this shelter. They're looking on photos. Uh, they put their photos uh, on uh, different social medias to find their relatives. Do they hug you? Do they want physical affection or... <sighs> No speaking, no touching. They don't want anybody to touch them. They're too scared. There are a lot of people they don't know. They're too scared of everything that happened around. Over them works psychologists. Well, that's a lot of incredible information. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you very much because every day I have a lot of stories of pain from Kharkiv, Irpin, Bucha, Baradyanka, Warzel. Because <sighs> it's really important what Russian did with our people. Second interview I did with Nastya is about her parents who were trapped in Cherniv. In this segment, Nastya describes the horrendous ordeal her parents, grandfather, and the family dog survived before their escape from Cherniv. Nastya's father would not leave the Cherniv bunker without his dog and stayed behind until the Jewish community came to his rescue. Anastasia Mishuska, what was your life like before the 24th of February? It's very wonderful. For eight years, I worked as an international DJ in clubs, stadiums. I visited many countries. I had a clothing store in Kiev. I have a little advertising agency. My father opened a lavender farm. We were preparing to start some lavender production. But then war has come and we lost everything. I was in Kiev. My mother, who was visiting us, ran into my room and said that the war had begun. And it was the worst thing that I could hear because near me was my three-year-old son sleeping. My husband ran to the stores to buy some groceries, pharmacies, to have some medicine. On the streets, it was terrible. Use of 200, 300 people, screams, tears, catastrophic traffic jams around the city, especially exits from the city. Because people understand that they should urgently go west because the enemies would come from the east. We don't know what to do. And we decided to pack as many things as possible into our car and go away from Kiev, away from the war. And maybe some will shelter us. This day I will never forget. It was my 24th February. We were very lucky because my friend called me and invited us in village 70 kilometers from Kiev and we stayed there for 12 days. Can it's you tell me about Cherniv? I know that Cherniv was the location of the siege, one of the worst places in the war, and that's where your parents were, right? Cherniv is my native city. You said your mother went back? Yes, because there were my father and grandfather in Chernigov. This is my biggest pain because Chernigov become one of the scariest places maybe in Ukraine. Tell me more about Chernigov and how you got your parents out. Chernigov borders with Russia and Belarus, so they were the first to feel the full horror of the war. My parents' house is located right at the entrance to the city. So they were the first to feel Russian evil. <laughs> my parents told me that on the first night, mines and shoots whistled about their house. The alarm was sounding all the time. 
The basement in which they stored vegetables uh, in peacetime served as a shelter. Three days after the start of the war, heat, electricity and water were gone. It was very, very cold outside. It was snowy. There was nothing to heat the house. Grocery stores stopped working the first days of war. There was nowhere to get water. My parents didn't believe that there would be a war, so they did not stock up. It was very hard to feed three people and a very big dog. We understood that even with very strong savings, there would be food for maximum two weeks. For a short time, they managed to get bottles, all buckets of water, and it saved their lives. They had to make a fire early in the morning under the whistle and bursts of shells and try to cook something in such hellish conditions. And sometimes that drawn the bathhouse to warm up and it was necessary to observe that no light, no smoke could be seen. Two days after the parents left their house, a shell flew into the bathhouse in the same place where they warmed themselves. And if they were still there, they would no longer be alive. Every day, mines exploded nearby. Windows of our home flew out. Fragments of mines still lay in our yard. And one bomb got father's bathhouse. It's without windows, without roof. Everything was broken. <sighs> Who took them to the bunker? How did they get there? Military managed to take the parents to the bunker. Only military, because they have very dangerous part of the city. And military volunteers stood near their house, and my mom asked them to take them to the city center, start crying, and they took them to the bunker. Was this a week after it started? Or? No, it was more than two, two weeks. weeks. Yes. Before this time, they didn't want to go away. They was hoping that it's on a few days, but <laughs> it's still now. <laughs> Tell me what it was like in the bunker. It was a real bunker, not basement. Very big. There was no light and heat in the bunker. There were maybe 100 or 150 people, different ages, children, elderly, animals, cats, dogs. But mom said that it was really cold. But there was food and safety because it's a real bunker. They tried to evacuate them, but it was a very big trouble. There was no official green corridor in Chernihiv. Every day they went to the places where people tried to evacuate, but volunteers took only women and children. My mom was told to leave my grandfather and the dog. It was really terrible because mom said that she could not do this. She could not leave her father. She can't live with this. And she had to go back to the bunker. At the third day of trying to evacuate, where they were standing. Shell flew in these buses mm -hmm. and everyone fled and 10 people died. In that mess, someone stole my parents' things and they went in tears without clothes to that bunker. Mom said that then was the first time in her life she felt so hopeless. People that had house, a car, life, money, everything, everything. And now they had uh, nothing. Cold, hungry, homeless people. 
They sat and cried and didn't know what to do. And then one volunteer offered shelters at his house. They stayed for a week with really hellish attempts to evacuate. I offered any money, 100 to 1,000, 2,000 dollars, to find an opportunity to take them out. But nobody took them out. With great difficulty, every couple of days, I could get through to them and say maybe a few words. And by miracle and God's help, maybe on March 22nd, one Ukrainian church agreed to take my mother and grandfather out, but without animals. And my father stayed in Chernigiv with his dog. When my mom's and dad's cars was leaving Chernigiv, a mine flew into one of the cars right in front of my mother's. It rolled over. The people died. The driver of my mother's car stepped on the gas and started shouting for everyone to duck down and pray. Only pray. It was a terrible time. I met them in Kiev. I hugged them. I can't tell you how they looked. They were hungry, dirty, but alive. Since then, they live with me in Kiev in my little flat. Is your father still there now? And now he is in Kiev. My dad stayed in Chernigiv for more days. I was looking to evacuate him, and I found a Ukrainian Jewish community and Jewish diplomat in Israel, Daniel Shapiro, has some volunteer group in Ukraine, and they worked with our Ukrainian synagogue in central of Kiev, and they agreed to take my father with his dog. He is not Jew, but these people really took him. And uh, <laughs> I always want to say huge thanks to the Jewish community. There are people with a huge heart because they were agreed to take my father out with a dog, despite the fact that he is not a Jew. But on the day of my father's evacuation, Russian planes bombed the one bridge into the city, through which the buses were going to the city. Dad was stuck. I was crying in panic because I didn't know what to do. There was no hope, but military were able to cut through Russians a small corridor just for evacuation. Dad had to walk two kilometers through the minefields with his dog uh, to the evacuation buses. He said that it was his last hope and he just did it. And he came to Kiev late night and I couldn't meet him. So they put him in synagogue with dogs. They gave him some good food, fresh bread, meat, and he had a night in synagogue. And every few hours somebody asked if he needs something. And he was really happy that these people were worrying about him. And next day he asked them how can he say that he is very grateful for them. And they said that they need nothing. Our family is really so grateful to the Jewish community. And after this, a few days ago, Lina, the Jew from Ukraine, who helped me evacuate him, now she's in Tel Aviv and they want to help all the time. She wrote me, how is my dad? How is our dog? And that's why I'm really happy that we have such help from this community because we are Christians and there is another religion but it's people with so big hearts is your father also in the flat with the dog yes in my <laughs> little <laughs> now I have my husband my son my dog me mom dad grandpa and a big dog 
<laughs> the Thalium family. That must be very interesting. Oh, yes. <laughs> how is your family now? How are your parents? How is your grandfather? Oh, Dad has very big problems with his health after all this, but mm -hmm. uh, with strong nerves. But mom and grandfather were very bad. They eat all the time. Every loud noise, they were scared. They go to our basement in my house, and mom cries a lot. She cries in nights. She starts to cry about her house in Chernigiev, everything about people. She can't see news on TV. For her, it's very heart. And after my loved ones left from Chernigiv, horror in Chernigiv set in. Due to the fact that the bridge was blown up, food and medicine could not be brought in the city. Such a blockade lasted two weeks, and it was really terrible. People was hungry, ill. Volunteers tried to save people as best they could. And I believe that Chernigiv volunteers are heroes, really heroes. These people saved a lot of lives. They saved my parents with food, with evacuation, with medicine. And now I'm cooperating with them and helping in any ways I can. Volunteering. I raise money and buy food, medicine for dogs and animal shelters. I understand from looking at your Instagram that you are now doing volunteer pharmacy. And I also saw you with the defense kitchen. Yes, yes. A lot of little children without any help. A lot of migrants came from East without clothes and medicine and I help them and now I'm organized my own mini kitchen where every day we feed 10 children from very poor families. How are you doing this? You're by yourself or are you part of a larger organization? I'm by myself and my few friends in Kiev and in Lviv who helped me and together we doing something good. <laughs> we won't just help without any official documents. It's very difficult on my own, but I can't leave 100 children. And this defense kitchen helped me one day in the week. They give me food for these children. And also there are a lot of good people from other cities who helped. I'm always grateful for everything because now it's a big trouble. But I can't let people die without food, without medicine. Also we help collecting humanitarian aid for Bucha, Irpen, Kharkiv. 10 minutes before interview, I took a few boxes with medicine from West Ukraine, and I'll send it tomorrow to Chernihiv and Kharkiv. What are the biggest needs? Insulin, asthma medication, diapers for old people, hurt medicine. Pain medicine. We have a lot of requests from people, and sometimes I give up, but my slogan is not give up. But sometimes it's very difficult. But I, I can't live when I know that some people are hungry, ill, with terrible pain, and I can't live with it. That's why we help other people. Are you going from pharmacy to pharmacy in Kiev to find these things? How are you getting it? I just go to pharmacies and buy it on my own money. Or maybe I did some uh, raising money in my Instagram. And then I go and buy it in official pharmacies and say send it where people need it.
And how are you sending it? Are you sending it by mail? Do you have people who deliver for you? Are you delivering it yourself? Uh, some towns and cities and villages have post offices that works now. But a few weeks ago in Chernigiv didn't work any post offices. And I find in internet some people who went there and I give them this medicine and they take it to people. You have such strength and energy to do all of this very difficult work. What is motivating you to work so hard? When I look at my little son and when I watch on TV what happened in Mariupol, with children in Bucha. I can't live with it. It's very difficult on my own, but I understand that I need to help them. And this is motivating me. I understand. Thank you very much. And it's so great that we can talk about this because every day I have a lot of stories of pain, have a lot of stories. Today I have girls who was crying and telling me about everything that happened from Kharkiv, Irpin, Bucha, Baradanka, Warzel. Great that America will know what happened with my family and what happened in Ukraine. Thank you for listening to Ukraine 242. I'm Anne Levine the show's creator and producer. Ursula Rudenberg is the editor. Michael Levine is our recording engineer. Next week, we will bring you our next interview with a new 242 story.